If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn them with me to the book of Psalms. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn your handout over to the other side where Psalm 3 has been printed and outlined so you can hopefully follow along nicely and easily with our service and teaching in God's Word. Psalm 3, this is now the third message in a teaching, a series of teachings through the first book of the Psalms. The the Psalms are broken into five books, and we've covered the first two Psalms, and now we're turning our attention to Psalm 3. And in many ways, we could say this is the first official Psalm of book three, of book one. Psalm 3 is the first official Psalm that begins the themes of book one. And if we remember from last week, if you have your Bibles open, you'll be able to see very easily that in Psalm 2, one of the main themes that we find in the introductory Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2 are introductions to the themes of all the Psalter, and that's what we've argued the last two weeks. Notice what verse 1 said, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. One of the major themes of book one, as we will see, is that people are coming after the anointed king of Israel, and more specifically, David. As we will find in Psalm 3, the first thing you see is that it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This little heading here in your Bible is original to the oldest manuscript copies, and most people that believe in the Bible as being the inspired, authoritative word of God, as our church communally uh, uh, believes and affirms, believes then that these little headings were intentionally put there so we know the context of this psalm. I'm not going to go over all that could be shared, but it would be helpful for us to briefly remember, before reading this psalm, what has happened in the life of David before the event of fleeing from his son Absalom. And as I go over these details, I want to just ask, hey, how are you doing? How's things going in your family? Feeling pretty good about life right now? Well, put yourself in David's shoes. 2 Samuel 15 was just read for us, which means, in terms of the timeline, 2 Samuel chapter 11 has already happened. That means that David has already committed adultery. He has already overseen the murder of the husband to whom the woman he committed adultery. He got that woman pregnant in that adultery, and then the child that was born died very shortly after birth. A few years later, another son is born, and that son rapes a half-sister. Because of that rape, one of David's other sons, the son that's referenced here in our text, Absalom, got angry. Uh, Rightfully so. You just raped my sister. So he got revenge and he murdered the rapist. Shortly after this, this murderous son, Absalom, 
did not receive any punishment from his father David, decided that he now wanted to be the king, turned the entire nation against his father, and started making plans to kill his dad. And you thought your family was dysfunctional. The last little detail I just shared is what is being referred to at the beginning of Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Oh, why'd he flee from Absalom? And that's why I needed to give you that overview. Things are going downhill in the kingdom. And this season of the kingdom in all of the Israel's history and nation is the best season that they probably had. This was a time of peace. This was a time of victory. This was a time of them being powerful. But you can start to see the cracks in the foundation of the kingdom as the king's family is falling apart. And so when we read Psalm 3, we need to remember that David is running for his life because his own son wants to kill him and take his throne. And with that, Let's turn to God's word together. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Psalm 3 is a song. It would have been more than likely used with music for worship. We've just sang two songs. This is a song that would have been used in the life of God's people to sing. And it is a song about deliverance. Or as the text in the ESV reads, about salvation. Notice that the way salvation is repeated throughout our psalm. It begins in verse 2 by stating, David's enemies say there is no salvation for David. God will not save him. But yet in verse 7, David prays and asks God to arise. O Lord, arise and save me, my God. And then the psalm ends with a declaration of salvation. Salvation belongs to, or you could say, it comes from the Lord. All caps, the personal name of God, salvation belongs to Yahweh. So may your blessing be on your people. This psalm begins with an individual sorrowful, lamenting, very difficult circumstances. 
And it ends with a blessing for the corporate nation of Israel and the people of God. So my question for us as this teaching series is not just to give you some meat to eat, as we talked about last week, but rather to teach you how to read the Psalms in such a way that this week you will learn how to prepare a gourmet meal of God's word every day. And the main way I think we need to learn the lesson of this psalm is to answer this question. How does an individual lament result in corporate praise? Why do we begin in this song thinking about one person's individual circumstances? David, running for his life. And we end with blessing beyond all the people. And with that, I think if we just follow the flow and the structure of the psalm as it's in your handout, you should notice that there's three, three steps, three parts to this song. First, there's the reason or the occasion of the song. Second, there is the response to that occasion. And third, there are the results so let's take them one at a time and let's think not just about the content, but notice the steps and apply these steps to your life, to our corporate relationship, so that you individually will follow these steps and that we corporately as a community will be able to conclude salvation belongs to the Lord and blessing should be upon all of us who are his people. The structural markers that I'm using are that very unknown, uncertain Hebrew word, selah. It's not really clear what this word means when you study everything you could possibly study about this word. And so I do think that even though we should not be overly confident about this, in this case, I do think selah helps us with the movement of Psalm 3. It may or may not in the future, so don't take this down as a definite, but look out for that word Selah. If you want to learn how to read and study the Psalms, it's good to know that flow of the song and its basic structure. And here, I think this, what could probably be a musical term is a structural transition marker. It could be like a pause, Selah, and then think about it, and then move on to the next stanza. It would be like if we're playing music and we sang a verse in the song and then an instrumental break gave you a second before running on to the next verse in the song for you to ponder, to reflect. Another theory is that it's an actual musical term that means to change the, the pitch, the tone, the, the key. So that way it's like a crescendoing, building up, rise is some translations by Hebrew scholars. Either way, we're going to use that as our structure. Verses 1 and 2 are the first section, and then it ends with a selah. And as I said, this is the reason or the occasion of the song. And in short, it's that there are many enemies. David is fleeing from Absalom, his son. That's one enemy. But we know from reading 2 Samuel that Absalom is not the only one chasing David. Absalom has turned the nation against him. So many, many Many, three times you should see in your text, the repetition of the enemies. Many enemies are surrounding David. 
And notice the word, they rise up against him. It's the same word that David uses at the end when he prays to God, rise. There are many enemies that are rising up all around me. And so God, ultimately what I need is for you to rise to my defense and help me. Interestingly, it seems though that the psalm does not focus on David's physical life. If you and I were being chased down by one of our children and they wanted to kill you, do you think that that might be one of those all-consuming thoughts that you'd want to pray, God, would you help me not die? Would you change the heart of my child? But there's no specific reference to that event. Instead, what we see is that the focus is on the plural enemies and the broader concept that these people are saying, David will not be saved by his God. It's deeper than just the physical life of David. It's the shame that we see he experiences in verses 3 and 4. So if you've ever felt, felt overwhelmed or that everyone or everything seems to be against you, then maybe you can relate with this psalm. And I think that's the beauty of the psalms. There is a specific occasion, but they've been written in such a way that they apply to so many of our occasions of life. Friend, do you know that you need help? Or are you feeling pretty smug and confident in how things are going in your own individual life? Or especially, as I mentioned, how's your family doing? Do you ever feel like that the reason that you are here is so that you would get saved? Not just a little help, but rescued. Friend, if you're here today and you're not used to attending a church, I just want to make it clear from the outset, the Bible is about you getting help from God. For you to understand yourself to be in a desperate position. And that the Bible's message in summary, in a very simple kind of way, is God has promised to help. He has promised to save and he has done that already and he will do it again. In the same way, this psalm has a sort of language about it that wants you to think David's confidence to come to the Lord and ask him for help is because he knows how God has delivered in the past. So what about us? Do you think that you need saving or deliverance or help? Perhaps maybe even the more important question for our psalm as we study this psalm is, why should God save any of us? Are we deserving of it? Is it because we're just such incredibly amazing people and that, of course, God should save me? When I cry out, he should pay attention because it's me. That's not the sort of logic that I think flows from this psalm. Is that what David thinks? Clearly, the people around him do not think he is worthy and deserving to be saved. Many, many, many people are reminding him of just how unworthy he is. Your God will not save you. It could be because David's not worthy of it. It could be that they don't think that this God would be that compassionate. It could be that maybe this God's not able to. Either way, David's response is not often what you and I do in a similar situation. David does not agree with them. He does not think, you know what, you're right. I'm looking back at the last 
10, 20 years of my life, I'm an utter failure. I have been a big time loser. Just look. Look at how I've messed up my life and look at the mess that my family is in. I'm running for my literal life because my son wants to kill me. And David's response to those thoughts is prayer. Turning to God, not away from him. Is that your response when the enemy says to you, she cannot be saved. God does not love her. She's not good enough. She's not worthy. David responds this way. Part two, the response to the occasion. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. David turns not on the basis of his merits, but on the basis of God's mercy. Why does David respond this way? Why does in this circumstance, this occasion, he respond with turning to God with confidence? I mean, just pause for a moment. Selah, pause, meditate, reflect. This is bold. Any of you murdered someone? Any of you committed adultery and then murdered the person? Anybody ever had a son go after your life and literally want to put you to death? I mean, think of where David's at and he yet still turns to the Lord. And yet you and I, in our own weaknesses and failures, think God could never love someone like me. I'm not making this up. I'm your pastor. I hear these sort of things every week, it seems like. But you don't know. No, I do know. I know that we are a lot of sinners and that the basis for us to turn to God and ask for his help and to receive salvation is not because of how good you performed this week. God in his kindness has revealed himself to David and in David's desperation, he turns to the Lord because he knows what his God is like. God is a shield when the enemies are attacking all around him. God is his glory and the lifter of his head when all David has in his life is shame and he cannot lift his own head. The reason I had Emily come up here and read 2 Samuel 15 is because it was when David fled from Absalom, but then I had her skip forward and read that one little line in verse 30. Let me read it to you again. David went up, ascending the Mount of Olives, Olives weeping as he went. He was barefoot and his head was covered. And all the people who were with him had their heads covered and they went up weeping as they went. I read that and I think David legitimately had a lot of things to weep about. Do you think that he should have covered his head in shame and sorrow? I think so. Do you think then that David should call upon the Lord and ask for his help and be confident that God would hear his prayer? Only if you know the God that David's praying to. The number one reason I hear why people at Embassy Church do not pray and turn to God in their times of trial and trouble 
is because of their theology. Their thoughts about God are little. Their belief in his mercy is small. We do not turn to the Lord because we're convinced that God is so impressed with us. We turn to the Lord because we know he cares and he listens and he commands us to cast all of our cares upon him because, what does Peter say? Cast all of your anxieties, all of your cares and troubles on the Lord because, there's a because, because he cares for you, Peter says. Do you have a because? Do you know theology? Not like do you read theology books? Who's your God? The God you have at 3 a.m. when you wake up in the middle of the night, anxious, troubled, stirring, that's your God. That is the truest definition of your God. Even if you were to ace some sort of theological exam on a piece of paper the next morning, your real God is the one that you go to in those moments in the middle of the night. David knows his God. He is a shield, a protector, a God that when he cries aloud to, even in his shame, he will know that God will be his glory when all he has is shame. He will be the one. Think of this image. After reading Psalm or 2 Samuel 1530, he's covering his head and he's weeping. And imagine the father turning to his son, David, and taking his fingers and lifting up his chin and said, I will be the lifter of your head. Do you realize that the reason we don't confess sin is because we're afraid? We're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of what will happen to us. The reason we don't come to church, many of us, is because of shame and guilt and a lack of confidence in the mercy of God. We think that church is ultimately out to get us. That sermons, if they're really good, they'll just zing us with conviction. But what if sermons were really good and they revealed not just our sin, but revealed the incredible mercy heart of God? The number one reason that we are not serving the nations and going to the mission field is because we are convinced that God could never use someone like us. The path from individual lament to corporate national praise That's the question. How do we go from the occasion of sorrow to a song of salvation? Answer, turn to the Lord and have him help lift your head and be your glory. Turning to God in prayer, in confidence, because you know who he is and what he is like. And if you do that, Not as some sort of magic formula, but as a consistent way of living life. The result is verses 5 to 8. As David says, third and finally, the result of the response to the reason for this psalm, I lay down and sleep, and then I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Is it obvious to you as we work through this psalm slowly how much this section that I just read to you is undoing what was said previously? Look at the details again. First, imagine David going to bed knowing that at any point somebody might come in while he's asleep and take his head off. He's laying down to sleep and he knows I can't do anything to save myself. I am utterly defenseless and useless and the Lord is the one that's going to have to sustain me. So he went down to sleep and he woke up again because the Lord sustained him. He was a shield around him, even though many enemies were after him and arising to him, he prays, arise, O Lord, save me. The same word that was used in verse two to say, no, David's God cannot, will not, does not want to save David. And David emphatically says, there's all kinds of enemies around me arising, same word, arise, They're arising, but, oh, Lord, I need you to arise, and I need you to deliver me, oh, my God. For you strike the enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked, and salvation, there's our word again, it belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people. And the result of having thousands upon thousands of people rising up against him is clearly seen in verse 6. The result is he's not afraid. He's confident. We began in very dark place and we end with triumphant, climactic praise. So I I think it would be helpful for you and me to just conclude this time together and think about this word salvation. It's Yeshua. In the Hebrew, if you were to read this in Hebrew, it would sound like Yeshua. That's the word salvation. If you've heard that word before, it may sound familiar because in Matthew chapter 1, when Mary was awoken in the, the night or, or interrupted in her life by an angel, said, you're going to have a baby and his name will be Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. David's great, great, great grandson, Another king, another anointed one, had many, many, many enemies surrounding him. And they said to him, he cannot be saved. In fact, at the end of Matthew in chapter 27, people were passing by Jesus as he hung on a cross, wagging their heads, and they said these words, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. So then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders joined in in the mockery, and they started to say he saved others. But he cannot save himself. In other words, the movement of Psalm 3 is that the anointed king of Israel is being surrounded by many enemies. And he is being told, God will not save you. And his response in verse 3 of Psalm 3 was to turn to the Lord and pray. And as a result, 
it led to praise for all the people and salvation belongs to the Lord. In a much greater, more beautiful, more definitive way, Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross and heard the very same accusations from many, many, many enemies, he responded with prayer. Go back to Matthew 27 and realize that the very next phrase, the next sentence, the next verse, after being told, you can't be saved, he can't be saved, was Jesus praying a psalm. Jesus turned to the Psalms of David. And the result was salvation. Except it wasn't salvation for Jesus' own life. It was salvation for us and blessing on all of Jesus' people. In the same way that this psalm begins with a declaration from the enemies that you cannot be saved, but it ends with a song of salvation declaring that salvation belongs to the Lord and blessing to God's people, so the life of Jesus is filled with a similar pattern. He's called salvation. His name means Savior. Yahweh saves, and he saves not by striking down, breaking the jaw, and using force, but by Jesus himself having his head bowed as he breathed his last on a cross. And that, my friends, is the unexpected way that salvation came in the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't through the might, like David's military battles and victory. It was through the meekness of the greater David, Jesus Christ. So that's a very old song, Psalm 3. It's a song about deliverance and about salvation when enemies want to tell you you're not worthy of being saved. From time to time in this series, I want to teach you songs or introduce you to a song. And so I want to just give you this last little word of encouragement. There's a modern Christian artist named Shane and Shane. And a while back, they wrote a song called Embracing Accusations. And I just want to read you a little tidbit of this modern song and see if it does not reflect the theme and the spirit of Psalm 3. And then perhaps if you don't have the musical abilities to learn how to chant or sing the psalms on your own, you can look up the song Embracing Accusations by Shane and Shane and get the spirit of Psalm 3. The song goes like this. The father of lies has come to steal, kill, and destroy all my hopes of being good enough. I hear him saying this, cursed are all those who cannot abide, that I am cursed, that I have gone astray and that I cannot gain salvation. But could it be that the father of lies is telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. And so when I hear him saying, cursed are those who cannot abide, he's right. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed. He's telling us that we are cursed and that we have gone astray and that we cannot gain salvation. Oh, the devil, 
is singing over me an age-old song. I am cursed. I am gone astray. But he's only singing the first verse. Oh, so conveniently he sings that first verse over me. But the devil has forgotten the refrain, the chorus, the point of the song. Jesus saves. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, not on the basis of our merits, but solely because of your mercy. We pray that your Holy Spirit would richly, abundantly, powerfully use Psalm 3 in the lives of your people. That you would teach us how to embrace the accusations of our enemies. When we hear the voice of condemnation, may we say, as this song lyrics just said, you know, he's right. I do not deserve and I should not be saved. But praise be to God, Jesus saves. And that salvation does not belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. Salvation is rooted in, it is founded on the Lord. It comes from the Lord. It does not come from our resume. Help us, teach us this truth. May we fight our enemies, whether they take the form of friends or family members or even our own condemning thoughts. Father, teach this church community how to respond when the voice is loud and constant. Teach us to embrace the half-truth of the song of the redeemed, that we do not deserve salvation, but that we have been given salvation graciously through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to pray that as we take the Lord's Supper now, that we would do so in a worthy manner, respecting and honoring the body and the blood of the one who came and brought that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.